Hmm. It's interesting For a that while, when said... I was eight, I was convinced I was Ming the Merciless, but that was because I was watching those old uh, summer guys cereal. <laughs> I was, it, it was interesting to taught myself to read by word shapes. That's how Agatha Christie taught herself to read, too. Mm-hmm. About the same age. Yeah, if you, uh, well, I memorized the book, you see, I could recite the whole thing, and then I, I just associated the words with the shapes on the page. Um, that's actually ideographic style writing, right? the way some languages are written, Chinese, for example, using uh, symbols, single symbols, the, the words. Um, so, I, I, I undid several thousand years of uh, alphabetic scripting and reinvented uh, ideographs. <laughs> when you were um, when you were a kid and you were reading, did you write too? I mean, did it inspire you to write? Oh yes, I always uh, continued the story, did side stories, uh, elaborated subplots, things like that. And I wrote my I wrote my first actual book when I was in my teens. Um, it was in the process of the only writing course I've ever had that actually did me any good. <laughs> um, it was uh, in a high school, and our teacher, there were three people in this special class, and the teacher, and he said, gave the teacher a ream of paper, this was back before laptops, of course, in, in the archaeological era, and uh, he said, you're going to write a novel. He said, we'll meet once a week to go over it. If you run into problems, come and talk to me. And we all did, and I wrote a novel. It was a terrible Really dreadful. It's sort of like the Rice Burroughs role in Howard's had But uh, I learned a great deal doing it. Uh, writing is one of those things that you have to learn by doing. There's a whole. Writing isn't a single talent, it's a whole bunch of stuff. You have to have a vivid imagination, you have to be verbal, and you have to be able to step back and read what you've written and actually see the words rather than the images in your head that produce the words. If you can't do that, you can't correct yourself. I've seen people like that. They had all the other qualifications, but they couldn't distance themselves from their own their own prose, and that was really sad. Hmm. Yeah, I actually don't even understand that, but okay, that they don't separate them. They don't read their. They can't read their own work. I don't understand that really. What they can't do is read their own work and see the actual words rather than the ideal image in their head. Oh. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. And if you can't do that, you can't correct, because you've got to be able to uh, see in your head what other people will see when they read your words. Yeah. And and if you can't do that, as I said, you can't improve. I hope that God has certainly improved that novel of 16. (laughs) You said it was like Edgar Rice Burroughs. Was it like Tarzan or something? More like John Carter of Mars. Uh, and uh, I, I threw a lot of Robert E. Howard and some Tolkien in too. <laughs> everyone, everyone basically starts out writing fan fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got, I've got a friend, uh, Patricia Fender. She's a British writer, and uh, she did her first novel, Shadow of Gulls, when she was 17, and she just actually gone up to Oxford when she was 17, and her first novel was actually very good, which aroused bitter envy in me. <laughs> But most people start with a terrible fiction and then rapidly pick up speed if they're going to make a success of it. Bill Anderson did, for example. He's one of my favorite friends. 
American office. I knew him too. We were friends. Um, his first stories, you can see the talent there, but they're very pulpish, very 30s, 40s style, because when he was a kid, that's what he read. Mm -hmm. And uh, then he rapidly develops his own style and improves. You can see the imagination there even at the beginning, but he had to learn the technique. And that makes sense because my dad, uh, my dad was a big pulp reader. He loved that stuff. Um, and I mean, most of the great writers were pulp writers at the beginning, like Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov. They all uh, wrote in pulp. Yeah, well, that was where the market was. Mm -hmm. It was actually, it was actually possible to make a reasonably good living writing short fiction back in the twenties and thirties. There they were like innumerable magazines, many of them only published very briefly. But uh, Robert E. Howard did that. He started writing for the Pulps, and he was the most pros prosperous guy in the town of Cross Plains during the Depression. Uh, of course, that is insane. But, uh, yeah, and it's only in the last uh, two generations that uh, you have to write novels to actually make a living at it, make a living in fiction. Uh, I came to it the other way around. I started with novels, and I find that uh, writing short fiction is actually harder. It's like stuffing a cat into a Coke bottle without hurting it. Yeah. But. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's really good. I like that picture, too. Poor cat. <laughs> well, one of the reasons I write in coffee shops a lot is that my cats consider me staring at the screen as an evidence of some pitiful emotional condition that needs to be cured by having cats climb all over you. So. Yeah, my cat likes to go onto my laptop, which is one of the reasons she's not in here. Um, <laughs> she just Walking loves... Walking on the keyboard. Yes, I'm, I can't keep her off of it. She actually changed the size of my icons. Uh, I don't know how she did it. I can't fix it. It's cats. Yeah, the the icons I I I used I had them small, but now they're like medium. Then <laughs> they I I like to um I line up stuff that I'm working on on my desktop, but they're bigger. It's harder to do it because she made it bigger. <laughs> yes, well, just think of it. You know, millions of years of evolution produced an animal that's able to screw up a computer. <laughs> when I was about 15 or 16. Yeah, well, her husband came around to our school with some lion cubs. Oh. They were quite young, still spotted. Oh. Um, and we got to play with them. But you had to wear, like, leather, these big leather gloves to do it because they were just like kittens except they weighed 40 pounds. Uh, <laughs> and a 40-pound kitten is not safe. Yes, yes. And they're pretty damn strong, too, I would think, because my little kit, cat, oh, is, yeah. is, she's only about 15 pounds, and she's as strong as heck. <laughs> yeah, cats have more efficient muscles than we do, so a 350-pound cat, uh, that's a disturbing prospect, because, you know, cats get the crazies, cats need their tempers. If they weren't smaller than us, it would be impossible for us to keep them alive. Yeah. Mr. Adams said that, that lions... If you raise them from cubs, would treat you as if you were another lion. 
And he said the problem with that is that lions are rather rough with each other. Yeah. So. Yeah, my cat thinks she's a lion because she, she'll grab my sleeve and go, and start trying to pull me. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that's valuable research, you know, because if you're writing lions or uh, tigers or leopards into your uh, fiction, all you have to really do is, is uh, observe your uh, your domestic felines and then extrapolate. Well, uh, according I, to the um, the uh, stories and I and also the nature shows I watch, that's normal with a cat and their mother. So my cat thinks I'm her mother because she does exactly, this, except I don't cuff her like a, a lion would do to her her cubs. Because I, yes. I mean, they they almost knock the poor things out. I can't do that. Well. Cats generally use a special kitten lap when they're they're whapping a kitten. Uh, if you look at it, they roll their toes back and so that the soft pads of the paw are presented, and they use that to whap the kitten in, in, in a disciplinary sort of way. Yeah, but it looks and, like uh, it's hard. It's not the it's not the claw. It's more like the 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 strength of the hit. <laughs> yeah, well, they're just you know have to get through to them. I had a uh, older cat, and uh, usually he'd put up with the kitten climbing all over him. But sometimes he'd just fall off and sort of dribble her head like a like a basketball. And uh, she, you know, and then she'd just meow at him. And uh, they got along. They got along quite well eventually. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, cats are weird. I mean, when we were younger, we had my brother had a cat and I had a cat. My cat's name was Freckles. He was a boy, and and he was bigger. And my brother's cat was named was Kitty because my brother has no imagination. <laughs> and what would happen was like um, we would visit our parents and would bring our cats because our parents loved cats. And at Thanksgiving, Kitty would be sitting on one of the chairs, and Freckles would go underneath the chair and. Kitty would whack Freckles on the butt, and then Freckles would chase Kitty, and my mom would say, Freckles, leave Kitty alone. <laughs> I'm like, I was yes, here, well, Mom. This isn't Freckles' fault. <laughs> but that was Kitty. She was so clever. She she got him, and she also got him in trouble. <laughs> yeah, well, cats are good at that. Uh, the thing about cats is, you know, they genuinely love you, but they do it in an intensely selfish way. Mm-hmm. It's their nature, but they weren't social animals to begin with. Yeah, so occasionally I, I write my cats into books just for the hell of it. Do you have, how so many cats do you have? Two. Two. Yeah, two cats is fun. Any more is you're a zookeeper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I only have one. And besides which, they don't like being crowded together. One's enough, actually, for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can never tell how cats are going to get along. Sometimes they like each other, sometimes they don't. And they have decided opinions. <laughs> well, so do I. Well, every, I think uh, every creature does. Whatever, whatever life form they are, all animals 
have uh, their own opinions and their own personalities. <laughs> yeah. And you should remember that they have their own priorities. Mm-hmm. One of my uh, the characters in the book I just finished, uh, my, he, he rides a lot. He grew up on a ranch in Texas, and uh, he reflects at one point that a horse weighs nearly a ton and it has its own priorities, and you have to remember that. Yeah, especially since they're a ton. Yeah, exactly. I, had a, I was riding a horse once and it decided it didn't want to go on riding, so it just walked over to a tree and leaned its forehead against the tree and refused to move. That was embarrassing. So you were stuck there? <laughs> yes, I actually was for quite some time. That, as I said, was embarrassing, but that was a uh, rental horse. And, uh, rental horses are difficult. Which is not surprising since they're exposed to so many different types of uh, types of people. A lot of them don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I actually I remember I had a rental horse that was really pretty good, but but for some reason it, the horse didn't like to be with the other horses in for the ride, and so she would stay back. And everybody else was like ahead, and the guy who's the leader says, "Come on, keep up!" And I'm like, "I'm trying." <laughs> <laughs> well, horses are social, and they have their own hierarchies and uh, likes and dislikes and that sort of thing. And as far as they're concerned, herd politics are the most important thing in the world. I wonder why she kept back. I never really understood that. Might have been a little horse on the totem pole, might have had a quarrel with one of the other horses. You know, they do that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's one of the, re the ways fiction has gotten less, uh, less realistic. In science fiction and fantasy, and especially fantasy, of course, you write a lot about things like horses, and people have less, and they have less direct experience with them these days. And you can tell a horse acts like a motorcycle. Yeah, it's just like I was reading um, a murder mystery, and this woman had the cat was fetching stuff like a dog, and I'm like, this person has never owned a cat. <laughs> yeah, cats generally don't do that. I will do what you want, Oh, they'll they'll do it if they're doing play. You know, if you're throwing uh, toys at them, and they'll catch it and bring it back because they want you to throw it again. That's different. But it was like she would uh, um, tell the cat to go get something, and the cat would go and trot and bring it back. And I'm like, cats don't do that. No, 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 no. Cats are firmly focused on their own priorities. Yeah, sort of ruined the mystery for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a failure of research. Of course, you can overdo research, particularly if you put too much of it in the book. But I remember when I was writing my first book, um, and I did a lot of research on the background for the world, you know, world building and that sort of thing. And eventually, I had my apartment floor covered with a giant map I'd made by taping together eight and a half by eleven sheets. And I was writing extensive notes on the long-distance trading flats, and I said to myself, "Steve, enough with the research. Write the book." Yeah, that was the first one I did. Uh, it was published as Snow Brother. I wrote that one in law school. That's why it's full of hatred and darkness. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like law school. 
Well, I mean, that, that does that mean you don't like uh, lawyers? Well, no, you might say that I, I know too much about lawyers. Um, <laughs> having seen the profession from the inside. This was in Canada uh, back in the 70s. And the way you do it there is you do three years of a university law school, then you article for a year. That's sort of like being an apprentice. Mm -hmm. Technically, it's called being an article in Clark. And then you do six months of the bar admission course. And I articled, well, I articled with two lawyers. One was carted away after three months, screaming that things were throwing up his legs. Oh, my God. And the, yeah, and the other was disbarred. Actually, he had four disbarment proceedings against him at the same time, I checked. That's... He also had 13 liens on his office. I'm, I mean, did you learn anything? <laughs> I learned how to be a dishonest lawyer. I mean, no, this guy was seriously dishonest. Um, for example, he had these clients. They were, it was a Portuguese immigrant family in Toronto. They, it's, you know, landed, worked hard, saved their money, started a little store, lived above it. But he advised them to insure heavily because it was all they had in the world, and it burned down. And there was some slight suspicion of arson from several bleach cans and gasoline were found out back after the fire. And they lost everything because they ran out into the night and the place started going up like a match. Um, and they didn't collect any of the insurance money since there was suspicion of arson. However, the lawyer I was working for at was the mortgagor. He held a mortgage on the property. And since uh, legally you're assumed to be at arm's length in that circumstance, he collected the insurance money. And they came into the office and begged him to help them because they lost everything. And the head of the family went down on his knees and, and grabbed Constantine, that was the lawyer's name, uh, grabbed his pant leg. Constantine put his foot on the guy and pushed him over backwards. What a creep this guy is. Oh, my God. I saw that with my own eyes. What a monster. So oh, yeah, he was. He was. Um, he actually got the provincial legislature called into special session. Is, uh, lawyers in Canada have to do uh, pro bono work. It's signed by the Law Society on a rotating basis. And Constantine liked to defend rapists and child abusers because he said it was a challenge. So he dug up this one a very obscure provincial statute from the 1830s about how testimony had to be direct and looking through a window made it indirect and got someone off who had actually assaulted someone in front of witnesses, in front of some nuns, actually. Um, and they had to call the, no one had heard of the statute for like over a century, so they had to call the provincial legislature in a special session to repeal it. <laughs> he was a real piece of work. God, he was, he was really a monster. He deserved to get disbarred over and over again. Yeah, he actually uh, ended up in New York trying to get requalified, and they, he almost pulled it off, but they, then they managed to find out what had happened to him originally. I remember when I was articling for him, I had to go and pick his wife up in a taxi once because her femur had been repossessed while she was shopping. Oh, <laughs> God. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he had me, well, he had me collecting his rents. He was a slum landlord among them. Um, so I, I went into one of the buildings and I knocked on the, went up the, the stairs to the first floor and the balustrade fell off when I touched it, which gives you an idea what the building was like. And uh, I knocked on the door, and the door opened, and I didn't see anyone. And I looked down, and it was someone who was three and a half feet tall. And I said, uh, I'm here to collect the rent. And he started screaming at me in French. So 
I said in French, le, le maison pour le, le, l'argent pour la maison. And uh, then he started pointing at the water stains and the things that have fallen apart and so forth. And I could barely understand his French because he was speaking with a thick accent. I, I really learned he was a uh, Franco-Algerian. And uh, then he started swinging at me. So he was just at the right height to punch me in the groin, too. So I put my hand on his head to hold him off and back down the stairs while he swung at me. And I can say that I am one of the few people who has been homicidally assaulted by a pied noir dwarf. God. <laughs> I, I hope you, like, uh, left him uh, quickly, because that sounds like a horrible person. Yeah, I got him to, I got him to sign my articles early, um, which, of course, he wasn't supposed to do, but he did, and then I got out of there. But uh, that sort of put me off laws of profession. I just didn't like it anyway. Um, so I, I could go on for hours about my experiences as an artist and clerk. And there was the time I was serving a restraining order and a guy who turned out to be the head of a outlaw drug smuggling motorcycle gang. Uh, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, but I had to do it by bus. It was constantly it was too cheap to pay for a taxi. Uh, it's funny in retrospect, but at the time it was rather alarming. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, yeah. those, so those I, game I guys are not book. nice. <laughs> yeah, I wrote my first book while I was going through this sort of experience, and it, uh, it sort of showed. And I sold that one to Sheila Gilbert back in 1983, back in the Tilly And she wrote back and said she liked it, but it wasn't fancy enough, so I added an extra 15,000 words on the magician. It originally started out as post-apocalyptic science fiction. So, yeah, that, and, uh, let's see. And that was in 84 that I sold uh, my first book, and I went full-time in 88, just after I got married. So, I've been doing this an impossibly long time. <laughs> I think it's very interesting. Um, I, How did you... Uh, get involved with Writers of the Future? Oh, let's see. That happened a couple of years ago. Um, I just met John, I think. And we got to talking, and he asked me if I wanted to do some stuff with him, and I, I said, yes, I knew about Writers of the Future before then, and I've always, uh, I've always really liked the, um, the way it helps aspiring writers who have a really tough road to hoe and more now so than, than uh, even before. So um, I said yes, and uh, my experiences with it have all been positive. I, for example, I got to see uh, the new Dune movie before it was theatrically released and showed it to us while we were in L.A. Hmm. That was interesting. <laughs> Is that kind of the... Interesting. Was that, that was part of the show? I mean, that was part of the the workshops or something? How did you get to see a... Did they do, do they do that, show previews of movies? Well, they did this time oh. uh, when I was there, and it was... They just, you know, everyone at the meeting, uh, that was the awards ceremony meeting, uh, got, to, uh, got to see it if they wanted to, <laughs> which most of us did. That's interesting. They brought in a... 
and they had one of the guys who was involved with the script writing there. I forget his name. Um, it, by the way, I really liked that movie. <laughs> the most science fiction adaptations for for film are terrible. That one wasn't, which was a nice change. Do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite science fiction movie? Um. Hmm. Let me see. Well, I really like the latest Dune movie. I'm looking forward to the second one. Um, I like the classics, you know, Star Wars, the original, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the original. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of good science fiction movies lately. Late Runner. Um, and then a lot of the more recent ones are good. The quality of science fiction visual stuff has gone up amazingly in the past generation. They take it seriously now. It used to be they cap everything up. Um, I, I think to protect themselves from getting cooties from being associated with such low things with science fiction. Uh, but they don't have that attitude anymore. Well, you know, science fiction and uh, associated genres have more or less conquered the visual realm. Yeah, it's funny because it, it it still has these weird things about genre in the literature. They won't, still won't put it in uh, science fiction, fantasy, and mystery. They still won't put it in literature. They still put it in like it's a separate entity, but they don't put it in. The, in I like. Don't you think that's weird? I mean, some of the greatest books are in those three uh, styles of writing. And they won't put it into literature. Well, yeah, but that's, uh, you know, there's a lot of quickery and snobbery involved. Um, the genres used to be less fully separated, you know. I mean, H.G. Wells started out writing both, you know, contemporary novels and science fiction. Um, and there was Byrne and um, all, you know the big guys back then, but then in the 20s, it got segregated off into a pulp ghetto, and uh, in some ways that was, may have been fortunate, because we, we missed a lot of the, uh, uh, self-referential stuff that came in about that in mainstream, but mainstream itself was just a genre, uh, except that it had a, a lock on uh, academia, so they like to think of that as literature and everything else as genre. Actually, there's, there's no distinction. There are, there are various types of fiction. If you want to write a memetic thing about an aging bobo in the Southwest, uh, you can do that. That's a genre. Uh, up with time travel or uh, aliens is a genre. Uh, fantasy is a genre. You know, what the heck. It's true. I don't go to literature to see myself reflected. If I want to see myself reflected, I go into the bathroom, face the think and flip the light on it. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I, I go to I go to for things and people that are not like me. I understand that because that's I mean you go you want to experience one of the fun things about reading a book is to go and experience something you may never get to do in your you probably will never get to do in your whole life. Uh, yeah. It's the adventure of it uh, and the world that yeah, you enter. That's why you Sorry. love it. In the world you enter, whatever world of the type of story you're reading, it, it's that's the fun of it. That uh, I, the joy. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, mimetic fiction is 
fairly narrow experience of the, uh, the person who writes it. Um, if you start out writing fiction in, a, in an academic context, that's the only world you really know. Um, you know, like historical fiction or uh, science fiction or fantasy um, require a certain amount of broad-mindedness. Um, yeah, so I don't want to. I don't want to start ranting about that. I, okay. Uh, <laughs> no, I just. Yes, rather I'm a. I'm a book lover. I love reading. I and I write, and I think that it's really important to get that out there. That writing is what is the, the reading the book is what is fun. Uh, going on these mm -hmm. adventures is what is fun. It's not you, you're not reading a book uh, for pleasure to be academic. <laughs> yeah, and you know the, the way you approach a book tends to strongly affect your, the, the way you read. I mean, if you write a lot, you you when you're reading, you don't read the way you wrote you read before you write, or at least you don't the first time through. You you um, you see things that just reading doesn't do. You see plot, you see structure. Mm -hmm. um, if I go to a movie, nine times out of ten, I can five or ten minutes in, I can tell you exactly what the plot's going to be, um, which is a drawback in some respects, but I can't be helped. But I, I find that I do my best writing when I'm in a state of, hmm, it's hard to say, um, it's almost like automatic writing. It's like something else is mm -hmm. is, make, is is composing it. The, the process isn't entirely conscious. Um, of course, you know you can't rely on the inspiration theory to sprinkle you with uh, magic dust all the time, and you've got to be able to do stuff in between. It's the inspiration that are uh, that is that is just as good, and you have to be able to like rewrite and and smooth things out and. Uh, oh, <laughs> You find the continuity errors and all that stuff, but uh, the basic process has to sort of well up. I find. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which means absolutely. the faster I write a book, the better it usually is. I just completed a hundred, hundred and forty-five thousand word book, um, in, in September, October, four months. Wow. That's much faster than I usually go. Wow. But it hit me, and I was more or less inspired. Time travel novel. Uh, That's one of my favorites. Remember that uh, joke I told you? Yeah. Remember that joke I told you? Yeah. How many, how many authors does it take to change a light bulb? Yeah. Forget that. Let me tell you about my light bulb. So you tend to be obsessed with the book you're, you're writing or have just written. Um, I love time travel. Yeah. That's one of my favorites of the genre. It's time travel story. Yeah. Mine too. You know, I, um, I, started, I, I read a lot of those when I started out. You know, everything from Mark Twain to Connecticut Yankee at King Arthur's Court. I love right. that book. Yeah. <laughs> That's my remember favorite the, Twain. <laughs> remember the bit where the, the Knights at Camelot are, are taught baseball, so they'll have something uh -huh. to do now that they're off the And they have to bring in new rules because they're playing it in plate armor. And when, the, when a fastball hits your breastplate, it sort of springs off. So they have to adapt the rules to, to, to take that into account. That was, that was inspired. That's, yeah, and it's Twain. obvious that Mark really loves baseball because it was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. Yeah. I and, love uh, that, and I love um, uh, the, the stuff that I don't know if you'll like it because it's 
it's a it's sort of a fantasy time travel story. But one of my favorites is Richard Matheson's uh, Somewhere in Time or Midtime Return, whichever way you read the book. Have yeah, you, I've read that too. I like it. it. I, that's one of my favorites. I think it's it, it it's just so amazing. I don't know how you feel about it because I know some men don't like it. <laughs> no, I like it. Uh, I have eclectic tastes. The only thing I don't like is being bored. Yeah. 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 Um, so. And of course, the classic, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. <laughs> yeah. You could see that, you know, Wells was doing something new there. And it's more an idea, it's pretty much an idea story. Of course, you've got the Morlocks and the Eloy and that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, and it's, it's it's both a classic, it's timeless, and it's also very much a late Victorian book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the concepts that the concepts that fascinated them at the time are strongly represented, like uh, oentropy and that sort of thing. And the, the part where he goes to the very far future and there's just a, a turtle crawling along a beach under a dying sun. Yeah, very striking imagery there. Yeah, I, th- that's one of my favorite parts is when he's time traveling and he's describing the uh, mannequin that's across from him as, as he, the different clothes and stuff. Uh, I thought that yeah. was really clever. So, well, Wells was clever. Yes, obviously. Yeah. Sometimes he got a little too um, preoccupied with his own cleverness, but, uh, yeah. but when he just let it flow, particularly in his earlier work, um, he did a really good job. Were you surprised when you got the book how short it was? I was. Yeah, well... It's really a novella. It's not really a novel. <laughs> yeah. There's been a lot of changes in the, in the length of uh, science fiction stories. Back when I first started buying them in the 60s and 70s, um, most science fiction novels were like fifty to 70,000 words or less, and sometimes less. You know, the ace double that sort of thing mm-hmm. um, and then they got bigger I don't know why precisely uh, I mean there's been some pushback from publishers they don't really like it when you do something over 150,000 words the awkward the physical binding and so forth um, that's why the uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy is a trilogy it wasn't written as a trilogy originally it was written as one book the publisher insisted on splitting it up um, and my first book was about 80,000 words, but of course I did that on a manual typewriter. <laughs> I bought a word processor with my first advance <laughs> on that book back in the early 80s, and it was an Italian model. It was like a typewriter with a screen that displayed one line of text. <laughs> Gosh, I had that too. That's what I used in college. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, I, uh, it, it was the word processor. And uh, I loved it because I used before that I used my father's manual, which was so heavy I would always be breaking my nails when I was hitting the keys because it was just it was a pain in the neck for uh, a person who was in her early twenties to keep breaking her nails every time she's trying to write a paper. <laughs> yeah, and that's when cut and paste actually meant cut and paste. Yes, used a lot of scotch tape. So I ended up, you know, like cutting out individual lines and repasting them on different places on a, on a piece of paper and then photocopying it. 
But the thing is, is that uh, when the word processor, uh, word processor came out, you could erase and move things and stuff like. Even though it was very limited sight of what you can see, yeah, it was oh, it was so much easier. And then, of course, when uh, when you didn't have to send a physical manuscript anymore, then that made things a lot easier too. Mm-hmm. Um, back when I did Island in the Sea of Time, which is a time travel story, by the way back in 98. Um, that was when I parted ways with Jim Bain. He didn't like it. Uh, he really thought it would flop. It's in its 33rd printing, so <laughs> I was right, right, and he was wrong, and I get to sing the I was right song. But anyway, um, I, the manuscript was nearly a thousand, the physical typescript was nearly a thousand pages long. And uh, so I pulled it from Bain. He offered to print it as they have at the end of our fight, but I knew we'd drop it into a hole. And uh, Harry Turtleduck recommended his agent, Russ Galen, to me. I'm still with Galen. He's a god among agents. But anyway, I, I sent it to him. And then I called him up next week and said, well, what do you think? And he said, there's only two ways to get me to read a thousand-page manuscript over a weekend. One is I really like it, and the other is you're standing next to me with a gun in my ear. <laughs> Well, I take it he liked it since you weren't there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't think I would have forgotten standing next to him with a 45 in his ear. So, yeah, but then I had to print 13 copies of that 1,000-page manuscript and send them to him so he could make multiple submissions. That's one thing I've never understood. Agents can make multiple simultaneous submissions of a book. But what we can. Doing it yeah, what is that? I think anyway, that's, that's so mean. I don't understand. <laughs> exactly. That's that's precisely my view on it. But anyway, I sent them off to him, and uh, schlepping 13 copies of a 1,000-page manuscript around. Now, that was work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And he sold, it. he sold it within two weeks. Actually, I got two offers for that. And uh, he showed me why it's good to have a good agent. A good agent is good for you. A bad agent will ruin you unless it's good. Um, he got two offers from it, one from Tor, uh, we were going to do, do it in an original hardcover, and one from um, uh, Signet, who we're going to do it in paperback. And uh, Laura Ann Gilman was the editor then, she's a writer too. And I said, well, which shall I go with? And he said, well, the money's about the same. Uh, Tor would give you an original hardcover, but you'll get lost in the shuffle because they do so many. And he said, Laura Ann is just starting this line, and... She'll, she's younger and she's hungry. She'll push it. So I went with uh, I went with the Signet NAL, and uh, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. You know, in the, considering the business side of the business, and uh, that was some of the best advice I ever got. So a lot of my I'm science really fiction impressed. books are Signet. Hmm? I said a lot of my science fiction books are Signet. Yeah, they've done some good stuff over the years, and well, they bought me. Uh, <laughs> Um, we're coming to the end. I wanted to ask you about being a judge for Writers of the Future. Um, when were you a judge? What was it like? How did it come about? A year before last, if I remember correctly. Um, I'm afraid my memory of the last two years is spotty in parts because my wife got sick and died in the spring of uh, 21. I'm so sorry. And, uh, yeah, it was very sudden and very shocking, and it only took about five days. 
but uh, after that, my memory things was spotty and it sort of lopped over, swapped over into the previous six months too. Um, and I'm about recovered now mentally, I think. Um, I enjoyed doing the reading. Um, I had four stories I had to say which I thought was best. All four stories were, were perfectly competent. Um, you know, they were all published with quality. Um, one was done in a second person personal, um, and I got to admit I'm prejudiced against that. Um, one was very well written, but just didn't do it for me. And the other two were both sort of quirky and idiosyncratic. And uh, deciding which one was best was really, really tough. But I, I finally just went with my gut. And once you're past the is this confident or is this not confident stage, um, it's very much a matter of taste. Uh, I mean, if you're a professional writer yourself, you can see structure. You can see where decisions were made to do this or that. Um, but a lot of it's just whether the characterization or the action grab you or not. And that, a lot of that is, uh, is a matter of, you know, what personally rings your chimes. Uh, I was glad to get an opportunity to, uh, you know, give the, give it up to the, uh, to the writer I, I finally picked. Because I thought, you know, the story just grabbed me and I thought it was quirky and imaginative and it was done, the style was done in a manner that suited the, the uh, let's say, in a manner that suited the material. Now, because stylistically, you have to vary according to what you're doing. Certain types of story demands certain types of style. So, yeah, the whole thing was a very pleasant experience, and I enjoyed going out to the award ceremony, too. Although, it had been a long time since I worked. I've seen it not since my work, since I was married, actually. Um, I'm looking forward to doing the game. I think it's interesting that it's sort of like the Oscars, their award ceremony. <laughs> yeah, well, it's L.A., can I say. Um, <laughs> and did you, um, did you, uh, uh, any keep in touch with any of your class? Uh, no, I didn't actually do the workshops. Oh, you didn't do the workshops? No, just the judging. Okay. Um, I wouldn't mind doing the workshops. I like, I got a lot of help from established writers when I was just starting out. A lot of advice um, and stuff like that, and a helping hand now and then, and I, I like to pass it on. You know, you can't pay back the person who did it for you, but you can pass it on to people coming up, coming up uh, in the first place. And uh, you know, writing is like acting in a way. Um, mm -hmm. There's a, a very the pyramid is tall and narrow, mm -hmm. and a lot of it depends on luck, yeah. getting the right editor on the right day, that sort of thing. Um, so I like to I like to give a helping hand to people starting out. Uh, it's an easy profession to get discouraged in. I was in a writers group back when I was first starting to get published, and there was one writer in it. She wrote true genre science fiction and fantasy. She did it very well. She sent the manuscript off. It came back with a letter from the editor saying, I like this. Um, 
and we'd like to reconsider it if you make the following some following changes. They were fairly modest changes, and she just put it in a drawer and forgot about it because she felt like it had been rejected. I said to her, "Be kind. That is not rejection. Mm -mm. That's a no. That that's a we want this. This is a step toward but, acceptance. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But she just felt crushed by the fact that they didn't want to take it. So that was sad. Yeah. Because she had everything except the breath, the, the breathy persistence. Um, you know, and you've got to be able to to write modifications to editorial suggestions if you want to get into this business too. Like I said, I added 15,000 words that the uh, editor wanted on my first book. Um, well, I think that's normal. Every uh, uh, first book, especially, the editor is going to help the writer make it more saleable. Yeah, and if it's a good editor, it's going to they're going to help. They, they, they're going to do exactly what you said. They're going to help you. Mm -hmm. You know, um, this isn't a business you can really describe in if you're a prima donna. A lot of authors think that they have to be like artistic, and uh, you know, they've got images of Hemingway in their head or things like that. Um, this is a great business. I love being in it. I love doing it. Um, as I said, it would be my hobby if I couldn't make my living at it. But it is also a business, and you've got to, you know, keep up a, a practical, engaged attitude. You're in the business of selling fiction. But the thing I mean, is that about... Uh, it's that thing doesn't mean you can, you can write to market. You can't write to market. I've, I've seen people try and it never works. The thing, um, the thing is, is that I, an editor is necessary. I mean, Hemingway had an editor. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Einlein had an editor. Yeah. And you notice the difference between Einlein's earlier stuff and his last stuff? Well, part of that's timeline, you know, things happened with him. But a lot of it is just the fact that he was no longer being edited. And, mm, you know, you can develop projects about a book, and you need an editor who has more objective viewpoints on it. And Hemingway's stuff benefited from being edited. Mm -hmm. Not Hemingway's, sorry, uh, Heinlein's stuff really benefited from being edited. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, some of the later stuff, my God, it needed an editor. Yeah, I I agree, but I I really like Job. I thought that was a really good book. Oh, Job, yeah, that was, but it was Job's sui generis. It's um, uh, it's a Judas free. Like, did you ever read the uh, Salazni's Night and Long Lonesome October? No, I've never read that one. Ah, well, that's actually very good, but it's exceedingly unlike anything else he ever wrote. Uh. For example, most of it's written from the viewpoint of Jack the Ripper's dog. I'm not kidding. It actually is. What? Yeah. It's written from the viewpoint of Jack the Ripper's dog. And in the context of the book, that makes sense. Uh, you wouldn't think that was possible, would you? No. But he did it, and it's a very good book. <laughs> uh, there's one point where Jack the Ripper's dog is talking to a cat, and he asks, you know, the cat has just done something nice for him, and he asks the cat, why did you do it? And the cat says, perhaps it's because I'm a cat, and it pleases me to be arbitrary. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a good bit of writing. And that's the person who understands cats! <laughs> exactly. Unlike um, the mystery writer who wrote the book I was telling you about earlier. <laughs> yeah. 
hilarious scene where, where various villains are in a graveyard and they're, they're, they're extracting organs for various nefarious and mostly magical purposes. And uh, at, at one point they're, they're saying, anyone need a heart? And says, yes, and they chuck it over, chuck it over to them and they're tossing the bits back and forth and someone says, dibs on that. It's hilarious. Um, you know, and humor is difficult to write much more difficult than action um, and to do it successfully like that that was just a tour de force i moved down to one of i uh i moved down here said so i think lived in santa Fe, but unfortunately he passed away just as i moved down here which was like well to be egotistical about it it was a tragedy for me because i really wanted to i really wanted to meet him and get to know him but uh, it was a tragedy for the field, too, because he died far too young. Um, I, th I think one of the really coolest things is when you get to meet an author that you admire. Because mm -hmm. I met Ray Bradbury when I was in college. He came to our college to talk, and I met Richard Matheson. Those mm -hmm. two people I admired so much, and they were nice. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Most writers are. I mean, some are complete assholes, but most writers are actually fairly nice people. Usually quite strange. I mean, I'm strange, but often rather nice. Strange, has no, strange you can deal with. Strange is fine. It's the ones that have an ego that are... I don't mean a healthy ego. I mean a arrogant... Stolen, bloated, unhealthy ego. Yes. Those are the ones that are very difficult. Yeah, and then you get them occasionally, but, you know, you also have to be able to disassociate the artist from the art. You know the old saying, uh, ars longa vita brevis? Mm -hmm. Art endures, life is short. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, Pablo Picasso was a complete, frankly, he was a complete asshole. He was. He treated people very, yeah, he treated people very badly. He was That's a mis artist was He was a misogynist. He was horrible. Yeah, he, well, he treated women like dirt. Um, doesn't mean his art wasn't good. No. Um, yeah, so you have to, be, as I said, you have to be able to take a step back. But it's nice when you meet an artist you admire and he turns out to be a good person as well. Um, like, you know, I've, I've met a lot of writers and I, I can honestly say that most of them were very nice people. Mm -hmm. As I said, sometimes it's strange, but nice. I think a lot of writers are, like, at least mildly on the spectrum, too. I suspect that I am. And uh, so are a number of others I've met. It gives you um, a certain distancing that makes you more objective about things, and it, it, it can help in portraying different characters. Um, That's true. Yeah, and a lot of writers are socially awkward. God, when I think when I was, like, in my 20s, um, well, also, I was, like, very shy, and I would go to a party or a dance with a book in my purse and and find uh, a little spot where I could have some light and, and read. <laughs> I did that, too. I did exactly that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I, I don't know if they do it now, but back then they had pocketbooks. So it fit perfectly in my clutch. <laughs> yeah, or you can, you can use a Kindle or a other e-reader these days. When I was on my honeymoon with uh, Jan, my wife, we went to uh, Nantucket. 
and uh, we were we were there for a week. And as just before we left, someone said, "Oh, you're the newlyweds," and we said, "Yes." And he said, "I've heard about you. You're the people who can read, eat, and hold hands at the same time." Oh. <laughs> I got my idea for Island in the Sea of Time on that time. Jan and I were walking on our favorite beach night. And, uh, you know, we were walking, we were holding hands. It was, we went back there every year on our anniversary, or at least every year we could afford it. And it's a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. I've been there. And I saw, oh, well, you know what I mean. And I, we walked on the beach, it was night, and I saw the lights of a ship going by out of the sea. And I was thinking to myself, you know, Nantucket feels isolated. Um, we went there in spring, too, before the summer crops right. And... Nantucket feels isolated, but it isn't really. What would it take to make this island really isolated? And then ideas started blossoming in my head, and I hurried back to the hotel and started writing notes for the book. And the book is basically Nantucket gets sent back to 1250 B.C. Um, <laughs> well, that's clever. That um, the whole island. I, I wanted to know, because we're coming to the end, what books uh, do you have coming out that you'd like people to buy? Okay, well, um, I just had, um, I did a Conan book, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the IP is with Titan Books now, and they're bringing out some uh, new Conan stuff, but tied much more tightly to the original Howard. So I did a prequel to Howard's story, Red Nails, which was the last Conan story he wrote, he the best. Um, so that came out in December. Um, I have a book in a series I'm doing, uh, alternate history, um, started with Black Chamber, I'm just working on the second trilogy of that, that'll be out next year, um, and I just completed a time travel story called Turn the Tide, in which five American academics are, much to their dismay, sent back to 165 A.D., Ah. In the, uh, when uh, Marcus Aurelius was emperor of Rome. Actually, he was co-emperor of Rome. He had another emperor who was emperor with him in the beginning. Um, and uh, hijinks ensue when they're dropped. They're in Vienna, or a town just outside Vienna, and they get dropped back into the same place in 165. And that was when it was the Roman town of Vindobona. And that was just before the Marcomannic Wars started, first of the big barbarian invasions. And uh, I had a lot of fun doing that. Also got to do a lot of interesting historical research and reread Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, which is uh, which is always interesting. Mm-hmm. One of the few case, one of the few cases where a ruler was actually a genuine philosopher at the same time. The Roman Empire had a lot of really weird emperors. Yes. Uh, you know, like there was Nero and Caligula, but then on the other hand, there was Marcus Aurelius and Hadrian and Trajan. And uh, luck of the draw, the problem with monarchy. Um, so uh, to turn the tide will probably be out next year. Um, and I'm going to write a book about traveling to an enormous Dyson sphere called The Lords of Creation. Oh, that's cool. Turning, yeah, and I'll be turning that in uh, this summer if I get if I meet my contract deadline, which I probably will. I usually do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that'll probably be out the year after. So, 
got books coming up. Going to write books until I die or I become a drooling idiot. Okay. Um, and do you have a website and social media? Yeah, I'm on Facebook, except when Facebook puts me in jail. Uh, the latest time, <laughs> I think their algorithm is a bit wonky. Um, I said that uh, a declining population might lead to uh, lack of interest in environmental causes, and for some reason they thought I was advocating the shooting of elephants. What? Uh, don't ask. Yeah. I used it as an illustration that if people lost interest in environmental causes, they might, you know, shoot the last elephant. And it was a purely hypothetical. And for some reason, this was taken as an advocacy for shooting the last elephant. Uh, I had I had a weird thing with Facebook too. I I I have a radio show where I do radio plays, and as well as an interview show, and I I just put out an advertisement for our next play, and I always um, put the actors uh, tag the actors that are in it so they can see the ad and everything. They asked me if it was a branded piece, and uh, if it is, you need to move it over and buy yourself an ad. And I'm like, what makes you think it's a branded piece? There's nothing in there that says it's branded. The only thing I can think of is that I had tagged all the actors. I, what the heck? It's their algorithm. <laughs> yeah, the, the algorithms are a living disproof of artificial intelligence or at least the way they use them. It's weird. It uh, is. I have, a, uh, I have a, an online group, um, the SM Sterling Appreciation Society. Um, I didn't make up that title. I'm not that egotistic. Okay. Uh, and uh, there's an email list uh, that, I, uh, that I contribute to. And I'm on Twitter, but rarely, because I find that Twitter is a rage machine. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you've got to do whole strings if you want to say anything but 280 characters worth of uh, boiling anger, which seems to spread more rapidly than anything else for some reason. I don't know why. Um, yeah, and I go to conventions. I always go to Dragon Con in Atlanta. Uh, Writers in the Future usually has the presence there, too. I think that's where I met John first. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it is. Jan and I used to go every fall there because we're friends with Bill Fawcett who's involved, involved with running that one. And we go to our local con, Bubonicon. And we went to World Fantasy because I met Jan at a World Fantasy convention. Well, no, actually, I met her at a World Con in Baltimore, but I was unconscious because I'd stayed up all night watching Battleship Yamato 14 times in the video room. Long <laughs> story. Um, but I actually met her at, a, uh, at World Fantasy in Providence, Rhode Island. And we got to know each other at the World Fantasy in Ottawa, and I posed to her uh, at the World Fantasy in Memphis. So we had a, a certain funds for World Fantasy. I'm going to World Conway because it's usually compact. Right? It crosses times with uh, Dragon Con. I can understand and that. That's where you can run into me. I'll be back on Facebook on January 7th. Okay. And are you and on, are, are you on Instagram? Are you on Instagram? Sorry? Are you on Instagram? No, I'm not. Okay. So Facebook when you come back and you're on. You're, are you on Twitter? Yeah, I have a I have a, an account on Twitter, but I just 
don't go there very often. Okay. All right. Um, I, I just want to thank you for coming on the show and taking time out of your day. I really appreciate it. That was fun, actually. I like chatting about stuff like this. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. Thank <laughs> you.